welcome to the uh, November Southwest Climate Podcast. My name is Ben McMahon. Uh, I am uh, with Clemus as well. I'm usually the one sitting behind the laptop and trying not to laugh, but today I get to actually contribute. And that's because Zach is hard at work. What is Zach doing? I think he has a giant conference out of country. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Zach will be joining us again. Don't worry. Uh, So Mike, let's talk a little bit about the last month or so of weather since we last spoke. It seemed like after Simon, once the sort of tropical storm and monsoon systems faded, we actually had quite a bit of above average temperature for most of October and into November. We did. Yeah. the, The temperatures were pretty impressive, actually, running right up until about a week ago when winter sort of showed up in one day. I was thinking about this, and I've been trying to actually pull some real data together to to put this in some more climate context. But my experience with October living here in Arizona for the last decade now has been when the monsoon's over, the monsoon's over, right? It's done. It dries out. The humidity crashes, and you already start to get your cracked knuckles and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we're losing sun angle through October, too, because we're we're moving we're in fall at that point. So typically what happens in October is every day gets subsequently a little bit cooler, a little bit cooler. But what you really notice is the nights cool off very quickly. We just didn't have that this year. Holy moly. I mean, the, the minimum temperatures running right up through the middle of November have been way, way, way above average. And that's, I think, really, that's what's standing out to me. I think maybe even Zach mentioned that he felt like it was a cold front coming through. And actually, on one of our conference calls, it actually was, it was just such a sharp change. It's not much colder than normal, but because it was so warm for a while, it just feels that much colder. You know, we usually, and if you look back back at the last couple of Octobers, um, it's not uncommon for us to hit um, low 50s or 40s even in October. It's cool. That's probably, those would be below average minimum temperatures and, and those kinds of things. So we're already sort of getting conditioned for winter in October. You know, we get those swings. It gets definitely to get back up to 90, but then it's super dry. So you're getting these real deep cool downs at night. We didn't have that this year. So it was, it was striking to all of a sudden feel what you normally would get a couple tastes of in in October. We were getting like it all at once at the end of November. Because we had a, I I think first widespread freeze warnings were in the past week or so. Is Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, there was a, there was some in the far Southeast Arizona, there were a couple events earlier in November. Um, But yeah, the the ones that were actually reaching into the low deserts were very recent. And it was because the dew points, you know, were literally hanging out, you know, the, the monsoon dew points, 50s, 60s, 70s, well, we had 50-degree dew points sort of lingering all the way through October and then lingering into November a little bit, and we had 40-degree dew points pretty extensively through November, and then the dew points crashed to about zero. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big shift. That's from, you know, kind of a tropical-ish air mass to the desert air mass that we normally would get a little bit more of a taste of in October. So where we're at now is closer to what we might expect this time of year. It was just the speed of that transition. Okay. It was yeah. pretty abrupt. Yeah. It was like yeah. falling off a cliff, falling off a dew point cliff. Is, and if you look at the data, it really was falling off a dew point cliff with the last, especially the, the last cold front that moved through in the last week or so. That speaks to the precipitation pattern of the past month or so as well. I think post-Simon, and I think you mentioned a low pressure system, but we really haven't seen anything since. No, and yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's kind of... We Weird, you know, so we get, we have Simon, we have a, a little closed low that wanders across right over Arizona the middle of October, some scattered thunderstorms um, with that event, kind of a weird, strange event, you know, nothing really frontal or anything like that. And then that moves away, and then we're kind of parked underneath this ridge of high pressure, and it's high dew points underneath a high ridge of high pressure. So what you end up getting is you get warm temperatures. You don't have that diurnal temperature range or that range between high and low. 
So we had warm nights, warm days, and no rain. So it was it was, it was kind of a weird. It didn't feel like late October, or November. It was like this weird middle ground that I haven't felt. I'm sure it's it's probably perfectly normal, but more rare. We basically had no measurable precipitation during the last month or so. And while that seemed as a percent of normal, it was very low. But obviously, when you have zero compared to say one or two inches, it's not much. Yeah, yeah. it's not much. So <laughs> yeah, it's a transition month. I mean, October is a mess if you look at the records of tropical storms like Simon, a tons of zeros for normal days, and then early winter storms. And so we had a little potpourri of um, some tropical storm, a little bit of a kind. It was a closed low, so it wasn't was not a cold front by any means, and it didn't. We didn't have a cool down after it. So yeah, so that was weird. And then parked underneath the ridge, and it wasn't until two events in November where they were honest to goodness cold fronts, ushering in cool dry air behind them, really transitioning into more of a winter pattern. Just a couple of tastes. Now that large cold front you mentioned is that the one that pushed across the Midwest that seemed to affect quite a bit of the country? It was different. We had we had our own. We had our own, like our own sort of trough of pressure move across the Southwest here in the last week or so. Yeah, and this, you get this weird kind of teleconnection, not really teleconnection, it's just more just more of a pattern. If it's cold in the east, it's usually warm in the west, just because of the buckle and the jet stream. And so when they had that really, really strong cool down, very, very strong, that even led to the lake effect snows in the, the Midwest, we were under the warm side of the jet stream when that was going on. And it was, if you watch the, the progression of the cold air, it was pouring straight out of the Arctic, straight down the Great Plains, made it into Texas, and it made it up to the front range of the Rockies, Colorado and New Mexico. And it was shallow enough and cold enough that we didn't get much of a backdoor cold front, which sometimes will happen. They'll sort of rotate in underneath the ridge and we'll, we'll get a cool down or some strong east winds. Had a little bit of that, but, but nothing of, of major consequence. Okay. So that definitely explains my relatives in the Midwest uh, sending me very jealous uh, emails and texts about living through this polar vortex, as they were calling it, which I know it's not actually. Well, it was a lobe of it. And it was certainly of Arctic origin. And it was unusual in the sense it was very, very early. I mean, there were some records in all the way from Wyoming over to the upper Midwest and that you ended up having some record low, record low temperatures, not all time, but for November, super early to get down to the levels that they've seen. I mean, Colorado had broken some records on the front range. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about moisture, uh, specifically the tropical storm system, because I think that might lead us into our El Nino discussion. This was actually a really active year for the Southwest. Conversely, we had a quiet year in the, uh, in the Atlantic hurricane season, but the 2014 Pacific hurricane season was actually the most active season on record since 1992. We had 20 named storms. We had 14 of those develop into hurricanes. Eight of them were classified as major hurricanes, which is category three or larger, which actually broke a record that was held since the same year, 1992. And so how much of that uptick in activity might be linked to El Nino patterns or surface, sea surface temperatures or other conditions that are related to that? So there's a forecast made by Climate Prediction Center for Atlantic hurricane activity and then East, East Pacific hurricane activity. And they knew going into the season um, that the Atlantic hurricane season would probably be below average, and it absolutely was. And then the East Pacific would be above. So it was kind of a nailed forecast. And what they were leaning on was the idea that El Nino was going to play some part of it. And the interesting thing was is that El Nino has been kind of there. And again, there, there's, it's, not, it's not been a very sort of definitive El Nino sort of bursting onto the scene. It's been more of sort of lurking in the background with some signals here and some signals there. But, but I do think that there was enough of the effect of some changes in the Pacific to probably relate to suppressing the Atlantic and enhancing the East Pacific. And so um, what that ends up looking like is upper level wind patterns will sort of shift slightly that'll become more favorable or less favorable for the hurricane activity. And I think you certainly saw that a little bit. 
even if there wasn't real coherent El Nino signals across the rest of the Pacific. I think even more importantly for the East Pacific, the fuel for tropical storms is sea surface temperatures. And we had that. We had epic not maybe not epic is maybe a little bit hyperbole, but we're all for um, hyperbole. I, I love hyperbole. Okay, like gargantuan. I'm trying to think. <laughs> and now I'm really going to be far-reaching with my hyperbole. But it was warm. We had above-average sea surface temperatures, and part of that was some slugs of warm water that had moved across the Pacific Ocean from the West Pacific to the East Pacific, which are those Calvin waves we've talked about earlier. And they will reflect and move up the coast, both north and south of South America, into sort of along the coast of Central America. There was some of that going on, but we also had a bunch of warm water across all of the all of the Pacific that had actually piled up over the last two years with our really strong ridge that had been across the North Pacific. So what had led to the the very, very deep California drought of right now was a very stubborn, persistent jet stream pattern, a weak Aleutian low, which is there's usually a low pressure system that forms over the North Pacific during the winter. It's been kind of not really there. When you lose all that, you get a bunch of warm water that piles up in the East Pacific from the North Pacific all the way down. That was really, I think, sort of after a couple of years, sort of building up to having this season, El Nino-ish, surface temperature patterns, circulation patterns, you know, really setting the stage for a nice environment. Again, that environment, warm sea surface temperatures, but also not a lot of upper level wind shear to tear these storms apart. So just a really nice, if you can call it that, nice for a tropical storm anyways, nice environment to, to grow tropical storm. Yeah, so for, and for listeners who may not uh, be as familiar with uh, hurricanes, uh, if you're on the Gulf Coast, you probably would know that more. Yeah. But in the Southwest, it's not something we necessarily think about. It's those elevated sea surface temperatures actually amplify the effects of the hurricanes or can make them more intense. Is Absolutely. That, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, so it's, again, it's it's proportional to the energy that the storm is trying to, so to use. Fuel for the water from the water and mm-hmm. then the, the lack of that wind shear that would sort of pull them apart. Yeah. You know, because okay. they're these storms form in an environment that is dynamically very weak. It doesn't have like a big low pressure system or a cold front or the stuff that we're more used to in the higher latitudes that really drive weather systems. It's basically a bunch of thunderstorms forming in the same spot. And when they're big enough and they're firing off enough, they start to take on weak rotation because they're moving so much air from the lower part of the atmosphere up. They have the the Coriolis force starts to come into play and they start to rotate. And so if, if you have you know, wind shear, where if there's a lot of wind in the upper levels of the atmosphere, that's going to mess with that organization phase of these storms. And so it was a good, I mean, you could watch these storms flare up uh, off the coast of Mexico, and boy, it didn't take them long to go from disorganized storms to, you know, cat three, category three, four, and five storms within a couple of days. And it was just like, boom, they would just go crazy so right and so then we saw that typical pattern of early the season they went further out to sea and you guys talked about this before but and then yeah, later season the we saw them that would sort of veer back in and that's where we saw you know three or four relatively uh, good sized storms that came across the southwest and that's pr- the primary driver for a lot of that late season precipitation yeah so, absolutely yeah, yeah you know it's some recurving some of them were sort of direct circulations making it inland and that then it, that direct circulation brings both with it moisture and then the dynamics which are important to sort of make it rain that was simon you know to a t odeal as well but then we had we had plenty of indirects too so norbert was not a direct hit it was a basically triggering a surge event and then even i think it was hurricane or tropical storm dolly which was a gulf of mexico 
sort of becoming an assist as well. So it was a really, really interesting summer. It had just it had like I think we mentioned before, it had it had a little bit for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> if you're if you're an enthusiast of the monsoon. So. Yeah, yeah, and it really kind of kept going, I think probably later than we sometimes expect with the tropical storm. Oh, assist. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. right. I mean, so in getting these recurving when you get recurving storms, they typically are much later in the season. And so they do linger in October. We just haven't seen that in years. Mm-hmm. Um, because we haven't had quite the right East Pacific setup like we did this year. So and again, I think that that's also part of the lingering high dew points well, well into um, November even. is just that, that that whole area is still kind of chugging along with moisture and above. Yeah. And you can even see, if you, look at, if you look at Mexico, Mexico has had exceptionally high dew points um, even to this day. I mean, it's still just very, very tropical, um, not getting scoured out. We wouldn't call this muggy. But yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Right. It's, it's a dry heat out yeah, here. That's yeah. right. Let's uh, zero back in on this El Nino discussion because I think the conditions that maybe help drive the tropical storm season, now we're thinking more into the winter about how we're going to talk about El Nino and the possibility of an event. Uh, even possibly already having started, uh, I think the Australians have essentially already called it and said we're in an El Nino state. Now, what that exactly means? Yeah, I'm, I know. I think right? I want to get a little clarification because <laughs> it's a good point. I feel like we've been in an El Nino state for six. Oh seven my months. god, it's a state of mind. Yes, yeah, right. It's mind. an El Nino state of mind, right? Uh, but they did officially upgrade it from a, a watch to an alert, and I think put it around seventy percent. The IRI mid-month forecast came out, and it was also pretty bullish. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was. So. Has Enzo already started? Has El Nino already started? Are well, we just watching the conditions sort of it, catch up? Yeah, and this is the tricky thing about it is is that it's a little unsatisfying. You can't really declare an El Nino event officially the way that the Climate Prediction Center does and IRI does until you're you're well into it, right? So, and and for uh, with good reason, right? You don't want to sort of bobble bob around with the sloshing water in the Pacific. Otherwise, you could say El Nino stopped and started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah and I'm okay. looking I'm looking at a trace. So, so, and I think we talked about this in an earlier podcast, but if you look at plate, so you look at this box in the middle of the sort of central eastern Pacific, right along the equator, and you basically take the average temperature anomaly or the difference from average. So if it's, if it's like half a degree, one degree, a uh, degree and a half warmer than it normally is for that period of time, then that's going to give you an indication that you're... Um, warmer than average, and then that would be a sign of an El Nino condition. So, And you can measure this on a daily basis. There's weather systems going by, and the wind is shifting directions, and it's mixing out cool water from the top, mixing it down. So that temperature actually bobs around quite a bit. And so it's technically this three-month window moving forward, and it's got to be above a half a degree to really to call it. Right? And so, so that you have to smooth, wait. smooths out, smooths out that, that noise. Okay. The, yeah. It smooths out the weather noise, which is definitely there. I'm, I'm looking at a trace of it, the 3.4. Uh, so we call this is the El Nino or Nino index. It's the 3.4, which is this where this location of this box is in the Pacific. And it's, it's bobbed around all over the place for the last eight months. But the interesting thing is, is that it's been above the threshold of half a degree since the middle of October, and it's been climbing pretty steadily. It's not doing the sort of day-to-day weather variation now. It's on its, it's on its march up. So if you just look at the last 30 days, it has met the El Nino um, requirement. The trick is, is that can it do this and hang there above at least a half a degree on average for the next couple of months to get us officially in El Nino. So we need three straight months of that I believe that that's what it is, and it's yeah. a moving window. Sure. So it's sort of, sort of moving forward. And again, like you said, smoothing it out. But so, so that yeah. means we might be feeling the conditions of El Nino a few months before it's officially designated. I think that's that, right. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's right. And so you get this sort of, I think where the Australians are sort of saying, you get this El Nino-ish 
state without it being officially an El Nino. So it's a bit retrospective to call it an event because you could have El Nino-like conditions and El Nino-like impacts, but they're so short that it doesn't technically go into the record books as an El Nino event, which is kind of weird. But, it, I mean, it, it, it can happen. Yeah. Um, we even had, we had very La Nina-like conditions last year, but they weren't, it wasn't officially a La Nina event, even though everything looked like a La Nina. Now, is that relatively typical? We stay in a sort of neutral phase and we veer into these extremes, or? Um, usually it's a little bit more clear-cut, you know, like you, <laughs> you know, you I sort of so. I would, yeah, I know, right. I mean, I think this middle ground is certainly there and in the record, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's super frustrating when we think about this from a forecasting standpoint, because moving into distinct states is so much easier to figure out what's going to go on and what you should expect over the next couple of months. So this kind of anemic way of moving into an El Nino event gives most of us, including myself, a little bit of a pause. Okay, is this thing really going to hang around? Are you going to like step up here and do your thing or are you going to just sort of tease us for the next six months? Well, I think you've said before, both in, in, in the podcast and also in print, that a relatively weak El Nino event doesn't give us a lot of certainty as to how much precipitation. So this sort of vacillating on the on the threshold, whether it becomes one or not, may not mean a whole lot for how we we won't know what's going to happen until we actually see what happens. Which yeah, I right. So it seems, so seems so, very right. hedgy. <laughs> yeah, it, right. Yeah. And it gives you. It, so it's not forecasting at that point, right? It's sort of waiting and seeing, right? Which yeah. it sort of it nukes the whole idea of even trying to make a forecast. And I unfortunately we're in that that spot. I mean, there's been a lot of hedging for. Okay, it'll show up, and we will call it an El Nino winter. But I don't, I'm not—I'm still not sure, which is a little bit frustrating. And, and I think just to build on your point of when you get in these events, and we, so we call a weak event, which is like it's at least above half a degree, but it's less than one degree. And believe it doesn't sound like much, but it's enough for the atmosphere to really do different things depending on that change in temperature in that part of the Pacific and Ocean. And that's all one degree Celsius. Yeah, yeah. Celsius, right? So. Yep. And so when you get these weak events, if you look back in the record, it's almost an even split between like below average average and above average winters so it, even because they're el nino there's like this this mixed bag of el ninos that that are not clearly decisive on what what it's they bring the, the nefarious equal chances uh, exactly forecast. right yeah. which and we don't even have that we actually have a we're leaning on a wet forecast mm-hmm. and it's because there's this hope and prayer that this thing will give us a little bit more and i it still is in there it could really get organized and even go maybe push a little bit above it's it's at one degree right now which is technically we're in the moderate El Nino. It's just that the models aren't convinced that it's going to stay at one degree for any period of time. And if that's the case, then we could be sort of in this middle ground. And that sustaining, what is that dependent on? Is that Do they even know? I mean, I think you've talked before about atmospheric coupling, and there seemed to be some hope that the, the resistance in the atmosphere had maybe been uh, yeah. broken down a little bit. Yeah, and, right. I, I don't know if that's the right metaphor. No, no, it's good. Uh, it's good. And the, the sustaining is is that there's a there's coupling, right? Is that that there's there's now there's a cluster of thunderstorms in the in the central Pacific that's that's now sort of sustaining the shift in the wind direction there and is sustaining that warm water in that spot. Well, it's they become a feedback at that point. The warm water is driving the storms, and the storms are then driving the maintenance of that water temperature, and then that's where you start to see an enhancement of the subtropical jet. All, all the stuff that we want to see down here to have the, the wet conditions. The ocean has been drifting in this direction of this pattern, but the atmosphere, we're even there today. We're still, there's this this very sort of, again, like I've been saying, the atmosphere is kind of yawning at this, and it kind of is doing that again, which is really frustrating. And part of it does seem to be there's very little temperature gradient across the Pacific Ocean. It's warm 
from the East Pacific all the way to the West Pacific. And that's actually bad because you need to have this gradient in temperature. You need it to be cool in the West Pacific, warm in the East Pacific for the atmosphere to sort of reorganize around that. The Australians even said that in their announcement, in their uh, ENSO wrap-up, was that they saw a little bit of cooling. They're anticipating more cooling, but it's a lot of, like, anticipating. And we're still not perfectly in gear. I feel like we're still kind of crunching it into gear, and we're not quite letting off the clutch. Somebody who doesn't know how to drive a standard. Exactly. This is a terrible analogy for anyone who doesn't know how to drive a standard, but uh, a transmission. But um, if you know that feeling, you know you're quite in there, and there's still a bit of grinding. Yeah, yeah. But so the general consensus seems to be that we are on our way into likely a week to moderate event right. <laughs> that will end sometime in the early spring of 2015. Yeah, this thing could crash on itself within a month. And then we were just, well, we're technically, again, it may not even register in the record books. It may be a neutral year, even though we've, we've been flirting with El Nino and even crossed in El Nino territory if it doesn't meet this threshold. So 20 years from now, they'll never look back. If, if it did that, they wouldn't look back and say it was almost an El Nino year. No, it would just no, be a non-year. No, yeah, okay. no. And again, you can, you can carve this up in so many different ways, <laughs> sure, right? Sure, um, Okay. But it'll, I think the more important point is to look forward about the precip side of it. And I, there are um, the dynamical models, even with this very unclear El Nino signal have been very, very, very consistent. I'm saying like eight months now, not waffling at all on suggesting above average precip for the Southwest through March and April. So there's something to that in the sense that they're not leaning on this El Nino event being a perfect El Nino event. They're, I don't know what it is. I'm not exactly sure what, what they're sort of keying in on at this point. But they still are saying, you know, so it could be one of these where it's a very, could be a, what if it's a very wet neutral year? <laughs> it's, this is, this makes climatologists just oh, cringe. Yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. only imagine. <laughs> so maybe Mike, it, it'd be good to revisit because we've talked about the Enzo signal and El Nino and an El Nino event for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months now. Uh, maybe just to take a quick revisit to give a short explanation of what exactly are we talking about when we say it is going to be an El Nino event or how would you explain what is El Nino? I think that the first thing you have to do is you have to sort of visualize what quote-unquote normal, I'm using my air quotes right here, what, what's normal across the Pacific Ocean. And so with maybe not completely intuitive thinking, okay, so it's the tropics from you know the equator, right? It's getting a bunch of sun. So you expect everything to be warm. You expect all that ocean water to be warm along the equator across the whole Pacific Ocean because it's getting all that direct sunlight. But what's actually normal is that we've got easterly winds that push across. They go all the way around the world at the equator. But if you think about this big open expanse, the whole Pacific Basin, they're subjected to easterly winds all the time. So what ends up happening is you get this flow of um, water away from the South American coast towards the west. So you get upwelling. So you get actually cooler temperatures in the East Pacific, warmer temperatures in the far west Pacific. So that's what's actually normal. Um, there's a basically a magic number in the temperature of the ocean that produces thunderstorms. So above about 27 and a half, 28 degrees Celsius, you get tropical thunderstorms. And below that, um, you don't. And so you can envision that if there's cool water in the East Pacific, warm water in the West Pacific, all the storms are actually in the West Pacific, which is what you normally see. So that in its own right is kind of interesting. And all that rising air has to go somewhere. And so you actually get a circulation, like we talk about the Hadley cell circulation, which is rising air at the equator and it spreads out and it sinks about 30 degrees north and south latitude, and that sinking air is drying, and that's where all the world's great deserts are, is about the subtropical latitude. 
Well, this circulation from east to west actually has its own circulation. So rising air in the West Pacific, sinking air in the East Pacific is called the Walker circulation, right? So that's normal. So gosh, that was a long setup to just like, what is El Nino? <laughs> so El Nino is when this sort of breaks down in one way. So La Nina is, we won't even talk about today. I'm just going to go right to El Nino. Again, think about this. What you'd expect to see is warm water along the equator across the whole Pacific Basin. Easterlies are pushing warm water to the West and cooler waters upwelling in the East Pacific. During an El Nino, and again, this is why the forecasting is so hard, is that the easterlies break down a little bit, and we're not sure what causes that because it's a bit of a chicken and an egg issue here. So if the easterlies slow down at all, you don't have that upwelling, and you start to have warm water in areas of the East Pacific, I'm sorry, the East and Central Pacific, that you don't normally have it there. So if that water is now warmer than it is and it crosses this magic threshold of, you know, 27 and a half, 28 degrees, you start to have thunderstorms in areas you don't normally, right? And so that's the key. Is that's why we talk about this Nino 3.4, this weird little box in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's because we want to know if it's going to get warm enough to make thunderstorms in that area. And if it does make thunderstorms in that area, who cares? Well, we care is because when those thunderstorms shift around the walker circulation, changes and that has implications for the jet stream in both the northern and southern hemisphere and so in the winter time that movement of thunderstorm activity that disruption of the walker circulation typically will enhance the subtropical jet um, and a subtropical jet's a big friend of the southwest well friend in the sense that if you like rain <laughs> but if you don't like flooding rain then it's maybe not it's a foe at that point but that's when you get into these el nino situations is that subtle shift in temperature storm activity in the middle of the Pacific can create a subtropical jet that could, you know, give us a, a whole new handful of storms that we don't normally see here in the Southwest. So, but it wasn't a very short explanation, no, I think but the, it's I, a lot of context though, to really think about what's kind of behind well, the scenes. Well, I think it's good because I think we've been talking about it for so long that we get this sense that El Nino equals winter precipitation. And but it, like why? But yeah. why? Yeah, yeah there's exactly. a mechanism involved yeah. and to explain. This explains a little bit why it's not just a consistent signal. You know, you yeah. turn it on and it goes. It has to do with how strong the signal is and how much that impacts these systems. One of the interesting things, too, about the, these El Nino events, too, is that the jet stream typically splits, which it hap- that certainly happens in any given jet stream. But when ends up, And this is, this is how the whole difference between the southwest and northwest sets up is that the jet stream splits across the east pacific and there's a big ridge of high pressure that basically takes the storm track north of the pacific northwest and we end up getting our own little jet stream called the subtropical jet which will end up racing across it will cut across southern california arizona new mexico and Cal- and texas and in Florida. The trick is, is that it can set up just north of us, meaning here in Arizona and Southwest, or just south of us. So there's plenty. And I think this is where you get in these sort of weak El Nino events. So you can certainly see a subtropical jet, but it's like plowing through Mexico, Southern Texas, and Florida, and we see nothing out of it. And we're just caught in the, we're caught in the, the middle between a storm track that's hung up over British Columbia and one that's south of us. And we've seen plenty of those kind of weak El Nino winters. You're just like, forget it. And, and it's not even, they end up being warm winters too, because you don't have any cold air to work with. Well, given that it's still a relatively weak signal, looking you know, for the next couple months or so, what do you think's on the docket, whether it's El Nino related or not? I know CPC has said mostly increased temperature and increased precipitation for all across the Southwest. Any variation on that? Yeah, that? and oh, it's been such an interesting weather watching in the last couple of weeks too, because the there was really this expectation we'd move into 
El Nino-ish pattern, which would have we'd start to move into this um, kind of subtropical storm track. And for the southwest, we start picking up some rainstorms. And the, one of the more interesting things, too, is that the whole upper Midwest and the east were expected to be warmer than average for November because that's a very classic sort of El Nino pattern, the split in the jet and those kinds of things. And what ended up happening <laughs> was when, one of the probably, it's going to, for some locations, going to be coldest and snowiest November on record. And interesting enough, we've talked about this actually for the last six months, is typhoons. Typhoons through like big, big wrenches in the atmospheric works the last um, couple of weeks. And super typhoon Nuri ended up getting, doing, they do, so they have recurving storms in the far west Pacific. They get sort of picked up, um, they move across to the east, just like we have over here in the East Pacific. They get picked up into the westerly flow. And this storm recurved, and, and it goes to what we call extratropical transition. So it's moving into, it's, it changes from a hurricane into a, or typhoon into a, a normal low pressure system. And so this storm potentially um, set the lowest barometric pressure on record in the North Pacific, but the records aren't very good, so we don't know. But anyways, it was very, very low. It was as low as, as um, Superstorm Sandy as it made landfall in the East Coast a couple years ago. Very, very big, very, very dangerous, very, very deep storm. And again, the, the, the I can't wait to see the season of Deadly's Catch when they were out, but apparently some of the, the boats had sought harbor or not but anyways so this storm it's enormous and so when you get storms like this the jet stream across the entire planet gets goes apoplectic i mean it just gets it's got a ton of new energy to sort of work out so the jet stream gets huge waves in it and one of the waves was a very very strong um, northward displacement of warm air across uh, western canada and what is what goes up comes down when you think about it in polar polar coordinates right but what goes north must come south the cold air that was displaced was that basically splitting off or not just sort of energy from the polar vortex. So that displacement of warm air to the north had a, an equal displacement of cold air to the south, and that cold air got displaced across the eastern U.S. That's how you end up getting 10 feet of snow in Buffalo in several days um, out of season. And again, it's a, it's a typhoon, I mean, which is a dis- – it's like a, di- like a discrete, you know, high-impact weather event that is not forecastable beyond – a couple of days, quite honestly. So there's nothing in the seasonal for, and we had this, we had that typhoon effect for the last all the way through typhoon season. It's very late, and that's shutting down now. It's very, very late in the season. You can't see that stuff coming, and it's been really interesting in the climate community to have these discussions about this. Throws climate forecasting in into fits because the mean pattern, the slowly evolving pattern, which is El Nino, can be completely trumped by a single discrete event that can last for weeks. And there's this other aspect to it, too, which is really interesting. I'm still trying to get my head around is that when you have these super dynamic perturbations or disruptions of the jet stream, it can resonate all the way up in the stratosphere, and then it can actually impact the formation of the polar vortex. And it takes weeks, if not months, for the polar vortex to recover. So you have this this resounding impact that could mess with the weather well into January now, and nobody's really sure how it's going to play out. And at the same time, poor El Nino is trying to like get some attention now, and it may be completely trumped by some of this other higher latitude stuff going on. 
So those extreme events, obviously, they throw off the sort of because the the outlooks and the the forecasts that are made, you know, three one three six months in advance are based on long term trends and expected patterns of observed. It's the slowly evolving part of the climate system, and the slowly evolving part is the these these oceanic patterns. Um, but these high impact weather events can, you know, we're learning create real, real problems that resonate over weeks. All climate forecasting is really based on the slowly evolving part. And then this becomes sort of a, a resonating thing. It's like a little burst of energy ends up sort of resonating in the atmosphere by messing with patterns and having waves to try to move this energy around. And it takes it a long time. And and, and there's some things that we, we look to. We look to the northern hemisphere and the polar vortex to sort of behave in a certain way to have everything sort of work out mm-hmm. climatologically for the winter season. And so when you get things like the polar vortex splitting in, in two because of something like this, it's it's hard for the models to even sort of trace out, well, what's going to happen mm-hmm. going forward? And it could be one of these messes where you've got an El Nino-ish signal. So if you think about it for the, east, the eastern U.S., this is where the temperature pattern, it's a very clear warm signal for El Nino winters in the Midwest and the East. But this Arctic oscillation can make it very cold. So you've actually got now two competing forecast signals. And when you have competing forecast signals, you have no confidence because you don't know who's going to win. And the models, when they have competing signals like this, they have a terrible, terrible time of resolving them and seeing where they're going to go. And that's why you see these like ensemble spaghetti plots going forward over the next six weeks they just like ex- have exploded into spaghetti where so. you see like extremes on either yeah. end for what's predicted it's pasta crazy yeah. Yeah. i mean at this point so yeah it's 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 not a good thing and so predictability very has been very low at the at the even the the seven to ten day has not been very good models have been really struggling trying to resolve all these things and so that then so can el nino jive with this can it you know is it sort of completely separate variability and signal it's trying to work with all this stuff is is going to be related and i think that that's where it's sort of it's pushing in the science community this sort of thing like holy moly how do we get our heads around all of these moving parts at the right time at the same time to to actually improve the the forecasting confidence and as you extend the window looking back so as i understand it these extreme events can kind of drag the you know the trend line or whatever in one direction or the other oh sure yeah as we, as we move forward and have more and more data does it does that signal get blended in how, how long does that impact of those extreme events kind of affect the way we understand it I guess. yeah i know and it, it it depends within transition seasons it's noisy already so you know maybe the expectations there if it's in the middle of summer i mean this is where if you look look at the middle of summer the impact of the typhoons on um, the jet stream pattern was really pronounced because we had some exceptionally, again, it was that same jet stream pattern, exceptionally cool weather across the eastern U.S. that you can trace right back to the hurricanes. And so here we are again. We're now in the winter, and so it's now it's just a matter of it's the same sort of jet stream response and pattern of, of cool east, but now it's like it has Arctic air to work with where before it just had cool north polar air to work with. And so now it's like it's setting wintertime records at that point to your to your point of the trends it depends on how you calculate it and what data you're looking at and this is where we have we've got to be a lot more sophisticated on like if you look at the annual average temperature for a spot you can clearly see now with increasing variability if indeed it's increasing and it certainly seems to be in in some respects that path to that average may have been exceptionally convoluted Whereas maybe in a, a year of low variability, it was a very clear-cut answer of, of, above or below. But maybe now, what if we're, you get to sort of a near-average year temperature-wise, but you set 
the record high and record low for a location in that year. Mm-hmm. That's different, you know? <laughs> right. So, so we, we're not, we don't do a good job sometimes of sort of thinking about the variability component and the, the average and the trend part of it. That's intriguing. Cause I just imagine, you know, at the end of the season, whenever we say the season ends next spring, we look back at the winter is the East going to say, wow, that was a crazy cold winter. Or are they going to say that was a crazy cold November? And I, I know, right. Yeah. yeah. And again, it would be interesting because the Buffalo snowstorm, so they got all of their annual total, and again, these are snowy places. They got a lot of snow, but they usually do it over a couple of months, and they get two and three foot events, n- not normal. They, you know, but instead they get a hundred inches in five days, something like that. They very reasonably, if the El Nino pattern sort of um, takes over, could have a mild, not very snowy winter, and at the end, completely be on average, right? Because, the total. Because and we saw something it. similar with Phoenix this yeah, summer, exactly. With the, with the monsoon, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Monsoon, right? Right. All of their pre- almost all of their precip fell in basically one day. Yeah, right? you know, yeah, and that so. that to me, that's. The desert can do that. You yeah, know? it's like yeah. we're 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 kind of okay with that. But when the east starts doing it, it's you know like they're kind of pinging on our sort of desert yeah. climate variability yeah. a little bit, like like settle down or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, it's been really fascinating, and um, it's it'll be interesting to see if this maybe just works out to be a very benign winter for the upper Midwest and the east. If everything settles down, the pole is completely the polar polar vortex is. is very unstable right now so it it could actually could recover and we go on and this is not an issue it could split and there's going to be a big mess of higher latitude variability that could be phasing with or competing with the el nino part of this whole story i don't know it's like a super interesting unclear picture moving forward yeah so fascinating from a climate perspective if not a little difficult but very difficult from a forecast perspective oh man if you're a forecaster and there's there's lots of forecasters who forecast for like investment firms and commodities Mm. and for energy and those kinds of things i've been reading some of their blogs and it is not a happy time for those folks right now imagine no not not an easy task and eating a lot of crow like (laughs) as like a for our thanksgiving transition here (laughs) Like crow sandwiches and crow tacos and crow enchiladas. I mean, two or three weeks later, oh, still having crow, still having crow yeah, leftovers. Crow leftovers. Yeah, so, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That sounds like a lot of fun. It does, doesn't it? That's right. <laughs> well, speaking of Thanksgiving, I think that gives us a good. I th- Mike's already—he's looking a little hungry. I, I don't know if the mic picks it up. My stomach's actually growling. I'm actually, thinking about I know it's, it's turkey well, tomorrow. Tur- so. Should I go get a turkey warm-up sandwich? We could. We're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, but thinking about Thanksgiving, hoping to wish all of the listeners a happy Thanksgiving or a, a happy holiday. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, a beautiful long weekend. I think for across the whole Southwest, it's going to be nice warm temperatures. Good, good shopping on Black Friday. Mm, throw a football around, maybe. Throw a football if around. Your, your yeah, thing. if that's your thing. Yeah. 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 Watch the Lions tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next month. I imagine Zach will join us again and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks.